Hello, friend. I'm so glad you're here. My name is Zach Holt, and this is Come to the Table. Some of our most intimate conversations happen at the kitchen table. Walls crumble as space is created to know one another more deeply. Hurt and heartache are replaced by hope and healing when we pull up a chair, let down our guard, and simply be who we are, where we are. In our time together, we will step in the shoes of others through recovering stories of redemption, offer resources and connections for those in need, and come together as a community starving for revival in our region. So if you're hungry, you came to the right place. Well, guys, we're so excited uh, to have a special guest, uh, Rick Mitchell, on our show today. Uh, Rick and I have known each other for several years now. He's a licensed professional counselor and a licensed substance abuse treatment practitioner. Uh, He's involved with all kinds of things, got his hand in a lot of activities. Um, So rather than me try and summarize uh, his bio, um, Rick, we're glad to have you, man. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks for having me, Zach. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, I have been surrounded by a lot of good people for a long time who have been making me look a lot better than I am, Zach. I'm very humble. <laughs> I appreciate the positivity. Um, so I have been working in um, substance use disorder treatment, prevention, uh, behavioral health, ministry, uh, those sorts of fields for now literally over 30 years, uh, which is a little bit mind-blowing to me. Um, fresh, out of, uh, fresh out of college as a newly turned 21-year-old and, and, uh, and started working in drug prevention and uh, had interned in a correctional facility, you know, at, at about the age of 20. And, oh, wow. uh, and so, and, uh, you know, through, the, through a course of public-private work, um, you know, having my own practice, and then um, you know, participating in ministry activities, and working full time for a church for a while, and you know, lots of lots of different things. Um, I've just been truly surrounded by amazing, amazing people, and um, and so I am. I'm I'm very uh, humble about that, and feel you know feel like I'm always in in the presence of people who are. You know, who probably haven't figured out a whole lot more than I do. So, um, and I appreciate you being one of those people, Zach. Yeah, absolutely. So, a few things that I'm involved in now are um, I am the uh, executive director of lifestyle recovery programs at Fairview Housing, which is a, a 501c3 not for profit faith based organization. And uh, those lifestyle recovery programs are Bristol Lifestyle Recovery in Bristol, uh, which has this uh, incredibly uniquely positioned building in two states, <laughs> which Zach knows well. And, uh, and so it's this, this one building, one roof, two states, you know, kind of concept between uh, the Commonwealth and the volunteer state. And, uh, and so we, uh, we've relaunched about three and a half years ago as a residential treatment center for adult men who are in early recovery from a substance use disorder. And um, so Fairview Housing has been in existence for now over 50 years and was originated and founded in Tazewell, Virginia in 1971. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then through a series of events, you know, Fairview Housing transitioned to Johnson City, Tennessee, where some apartment projects were happening, things of that nature, trying to get roofs over over people's heads and uh, started Mana House. And uh, so Mana House has been in existence for north of 25 years now and has served, you know, probably uh, over a thousand men at this point. And, uh, and so about 
three and a half years ago, we reopened after, you know, about four and a half, five years ago, we, uh, we started into this behavioral health care world mm-hmm. of uh, trying to help people in, you know, a different, uh, in a different way and actually providing some treatment services. And uh, that's, that's when I got pretty heavily involved mm-hmm. with Fairview and we opened Bristol Lifestyle Recovery. Well, we opened with uh, the intention of opening with men because that was the greatest pressing need that was being faced at the time. Um, and then we intended to transition into some women's treatment services on the grounds. And then, you know, our, we, you know, try, try opening a, uh, a residential treatment center in a new program and an agency who's decades old and never done it right in the middle of a pandemic. So, you know, God, God does work in mysterious ways. Uh, but, uh, uh, somehow, uh, through a lot of grace, you know, uh, we've uh, we've been open about three and a half years. We've helped we've helped about five hundred men in Bristol in uh, a little a little over three years. And uh, so, you know, men will come to us oftentimes from a detox center because I mean, detox centers do amazing work, they do great work, and really help people take that first step in very, very early recovery and help them to be, you know, help folks be safe, you know, physically and, sure. and, uh, and those sorts of things. Uh, a lot of people aren't necessarily ready to fully step back out into their own, mm-hmm. into, in, in the, the real world environment. And so, you know, hence this, you know, residential treatment center concept that's a little longer term in nature. So sure. an average length of stay with us is two or three months. Mm-hmm. Uh, could be as short as a, a month, could be six plus months, depending on a on a variety of factors. And uh, and uh, you know, there's this amazing um, you know, ministry and discipleship program that that occurs right down the hall on on the south side of the building that Zach knows a little something about. Uh, and uh, and so that's the the Mark one seventeen program that he he directs, and then. Um, well, let me let me pause you for for one second in that because something something you shared that uh, kind of spurred something. So it sounds like that uh, Fairview has has always been in the business of you know transitional housing, you know, kind of meeting felt needs in that way. Mana House is is a fantastic uh, opportunity for for guys coming out of homelessness. So what what niche or what need did the the clinical ASAM 3.1 model of lifestyle recovery. What what did that bring to the table that you feel enriches uh, people's ability to to find sustained sobriety? Like, oh, does that make question. sense? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Great question, Zach. So, the uh, I think the the thing that it brings is a bridge between social needs of housing, um, healthy, well-rounded, balanced meals. Mm-hmm. You know, medication administration, you know, uh, it, it brings a treatment aspect. And so it, it brings licensed healthcare professionals into the mix. It brings um, licensed mental health professionals mm-hmm. and, and licensed substance abuse uh, professionals mm-hmm. into, into the mix. And so um, it, it really helps focus on, um, you know, the adage of, uh, you know, no roof, no recovery. It turns that around into having a roof is, you know, really the first step in, in recovery and healthy living and, and, and things like that. So from having a roof over your head to having a good meal to eat to, um, 
you know, being able to negotiate the temperature of your room with, you know, with roommates and, <laughs> and you know. <laughs> the source of many battles. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's those basic, basic things. And, uh, you know, so people aren't necessarily mm-hmm. concerned or focused on, um, I always say, you know, use Maslow's hierarchy. Sure. People aren't mm-hmm. really thinking about self-actualization if they're cold, freezing, mm-hmm. wet, and under a bridge. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And, so. and in, in, in past episodes, we, we've kind of talked about uh, three things that on some basic level most people are longing for, and that is uh, acceptance, uh, significance, and security. You know, mm-hmm. do, do, I, do, I, do I belong? You know, do I feel accepted? You know, that sense of belonging, uh, significance, like do I matter? You know, uh, w- would anybody notice if I just fell off the face of the planet? You know, so acceptance and significance. Uh, but, th- but then also security. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, we need, we need to feel safe. If, if we're going to flourish, um, you know, we, we really need to feel that. And so I think that's kind of what I'm hearing you say is that security piece, uh, you know, medication management, you know, all, all of kind of those things, clinical services that I think are, are, are so formative. Um, so all that's super helpful. So um, when I uh, interrupted you about five minutes ago, you were kind of going through and, and uh, kind of sharing about versus lifestyle recovery, kind of how that mm-hmm. happened. And then how, how did that uh, come out of COVID into what is now Mended Women Lifestyle Recovery? Sure. So with the work that was being done in Bristol, including, you know, tens of thousands of hours of counseling services and, and uh, you know, 50,000 plus um, meals being offered and served, um, over 20,000 nights of you know, people sleeping in a safe recovery oriented environment. Uh, the, the problem persisted that we, we still had ladies calling or people calling, trying to help find help for ladies every week, usually numerous times per week. And, uh, we would try to help, you know, provide some other resources, give some phone numbers, uh, all the while truly knowing that, um, that a service like the one that was being offered for the, for the men uh, simply did not exist in Southwest Virginia for the ladies. And, uh, and so what, what happened with the men is, you know, the beds filled up with men, uh, you know, and then a wait list started to develop of men. And so um, a wonderful group of ladies in the Abingdon area developed and formed a housing coalition women's housing coalition and said, you know, hey, you guys are helping the men and they're, you know, it's this new program kind of in the state of Virginia. And, uh, but, you know, nobody's helping the ladies yet. I know you intended to at some point mm-hmm. on the same grounds. Uh, and it, it would probably be better if there were a separate facility. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, yeah, would you, would you be, would you guys be willing to help manage that if we can you know, rally some troops and get some you know, political involvement, get churches involved, get the community involved, and, and try to help ladies. And so that's exactly what, what this housing coalition did and band together and uh, you know, lots of resources pulled together, lots of connections, and uh, you know, lots of people who just simply cared. And, uh, and you know, so a year, year and a half later, you know, this, this facility opens, which is essentially a replica mm-hmm. of the men's facility in Bristol, just for women, focused on women's needs. And, and, and uh, you know, actually filling in for a, a counselor this morning who happened to be out sick and uh, covered a group there this morning. And uh, we were 
talking about how with all the open houses, all of the community meetings and, you know, legislators and, you know, churches, everybody else that's been involved, you know, one of the common themes that sometimes comes up when uh, a rehab center is set to open is people will sometimes come out of the, the woodwork and say, well, hey, we don't want we don't want that here. Um, and so the, the thing that I encourage the ladies this morning with is that through all of that, in the middle of Abingdon, we had zero negative feedback from the community about having a treatment center in Abingdon. We had 100% positive support. People were walking down the street to open houses saying things like, I live on this street and I want you here. We need, we need your services here. Um, these ladies are hurting and they need help. Uh, and we're grateful you're here and we want you to, to thrive here. And we just want you to know that you have the support of yes in my backyard. That's good. Yeah, because that uh, I've heard it called uh, nimby nimbyism. Uh, you know, not, not in my backyard. Not in my backyard. <laughs> and, uh, and and so how sometimes there's some resistance to it. And and I think it is. You know, when when uh, Linda and I were talking through this, I think it was one of the things that came out is I was just so amazed because sometimes uh, you know in nonprofit world and even you know even in uh, church world it, it can be this idea um, of competition over collaboration. You know, and and how uh, even good intention organizations can can become so siloed at times. And I think this was just such a fantastic, um, you know, example of what can happen when we all come together for the common good. And I think just a, a beautiful story that is just now beginning to unfold. I think the, the best is still yet to come uh, for, for Abingdon and uh, for those, those ladies. And, and it's just, uh, it's, it's amazing. I want to take just a second and uh, thank you all again for listening to Come to the Table uh, on WEHC 90.7. And we are just so grateful to have uh, Rick Mitchell with us here today. So we're uh, catching up and talking a little bit about his work with Fairview Housing, Bristol Lifestyle Recovery, and Mended Women Lifestyle Recovery. Um, So in uh, his famous podcast, uh, Simon Sinek talks about starting with why. Um, He says the how and the what flow out of the why. So, you know, out of all of the things you could be doing, um, why do you feel led to do what you do? Why do you feel led to step into uh, the, the sludge and the muck and the mire of, of individuals that are ravaged by addiction? Why do you do what you do? You know, it's a, it's a heartfelt question, Zach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm, humbled by the, uh, I'm humbled by the question. I, you know, I think it's... I think it's simply that you know God placed people uh, on my heart a long, long time ago, and uh, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging or something. Uh, you know, gr- even growing up, you know, lots of times I was I was a friend that you know friends came to when they had some mm-hmm. sort of problem mm-hmm. and wanted to talk through it, and you know, it's something that I I didn't necessarily I never envisioned that as. A, a career. Matter of fact, I, I began college as an accounting student, which is which is awesome. We need great accountants, you know. Um, I, I was a pretty decent accounting student, you know. And uh, and at some point in time, as an early adult, you know, I had this this realization, and I ended up changing my college major. Uh, to I took a psychology class and loved it, and then uh, just came to this realization that yeah, I like numbers and I like you know, uh, managing 
uh, ledgers and and those kind of things. But I, I really really like people a lot better mm-hmm. than than that. And so um, in my twenties, you know, started out, you know, changed my major, got you know, began working in the field, and uh, and just you know, people were hurting everywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, I tell a story, if I, if I can take just a couple minutes and, yeah, and tell a very quick, very personal story, which comes from a pretty bad spot. So uh, I hope nobody's traumatized by this, this uh, really poor analogy. But, you know, I'm, I'm 51 years old. And so a long, long time ago, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there was this, uh, this you know, there, a lot of really, a lot of people had gone into some post offices and done some really horrible things. And so the, the term going postal kind of became a, uh, a catchphrase. Sure, and sure. then it turned into this pop culture reference mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to go postal or whatever. So I have my almost went postal moment, Zach. Mm-hmm. And uh, my almost went postal moment goes something like this. Um, I, had, I was 21 years old. I was working full time in schools mm-hmm. in Lee County, Virginia. It's the first first person hired to do full-time substance use prevention work in Lee County wow. in 1993. And uh, so I'm in the schools. Um, people kept telling me I looked like I was about 17 years old. I would get, you know, ask for my hall pass or said, oh, the kids are dressed so nice today because, you know, the school administration requested I wear a tie every day uh, to separate <laughs> me just a little bit. And, um, and so I'm, uh, I'm meeting with this, you know, probably 13, 14, 15-year-old girl in the school and uh, one day and thought nothing about it. Well, these are the days of phone books. And so um, I go home, I'm married, you know, renting a house and, and uh, went, went home to my, my cozy little house and, and uh, the phone rings. And I don't remember if I answered it or my wife answered it or whatever. And it's like, there's, you know, this girl that wants to talk to you. I'm like, okay. And, uh, and this, uh, this teenage girl had apparently found my phone number in the phone book and called my house and uh and expressed suicidal thoughts and uh and i'm like whoa i am in way over my head Mm -hmm. and so uh, you know just had this moment of truth this crisis of belief you know kind of thing and what i was doing and um so you know fast forward just a little bit and i'm i'm sitting in my my nice office in a, a nice new office building and and uh you know i just closed the door and you know i'm I, you know i just kind of break down i start to kind of pray and i'm like you know am i doing the right thing can i like i, I don't know if i'm doing the right thing um and i had actually had the tv on at my house and and a commercial and some of you may remember these these old commercials but there were these commercials that said um you could be you know you could become a worker in the United States Postal Service, and for thirty-nine dollars and ninety-five cents plus shipping and handling, you know, here, you know, we will mail you a packet that will help you pass the United States Postal Workers exam. And I'm like, I'm 21 years old. I make seven bucks an hour. Uh, I have rent to pay. I do not have forty-seven dollars, um, but uh, um, but I actually ordered that packet and I paid that forty-some dollars. Uh, because I didn't think I was cut out for it, and uh, you know, I, I, I kept that packet. I still have that forty-some dollar packet, Love but it. I almost went postal. So there's my <laughs> literally, literally almost went postal. But what you know, what happened was, um, I went, I went to my office and I pulled a book off the shelf that my very first professional mentor, and I'll give her a shout out, Dr. Mary Lou Frank, mm-hmm. 
um, just swapped mess- a birthday message with Mary Lou last week and uh, and thanked her for essentially being my first professional mentor. But I pulled a book off the shelf that she'd recommended. It was called How Can I Help? Mm. And, uh, and I, I went to a chapter called Burnout, and I read just a couple paragraphs. And I went, I'm 21 years old, um, and I don't know if I'm cut out for this. And I read this little thing on, on burnout, and it basically said, you know, you're where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there, and there are people who need you, and if you have a heart to that, find a balance and, uh, and do it. And if, if you aren't doing this work, what isn't getting done, essentially? And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, that really resonated with me as a young man, mm-hmm. and uh, I really wanted to help. It's a long-winded version. No, no, it's not. It's not. And and I love that. And I think in meetings you and I have had before, you've asked that question before. If you weren't doing what you were doing, what wouldn't get done? Um, and I think that really speaks to to the uh, to the magnitude of you know of what it is you know what it is that we're invited to step into and and to be able to uh, walk with people in, in the fires and the floods um, in a season where so many people feel isolated they feel cast out left out forsaken and forgotten and so to be uh, to be the one that stands with them in the fire is is a, a beautiful thing so. Not a person uh, who has gone through recovery personally, addiction personally. Is that true? Right. That's, yeah. that's right. So what what have the people that you pour into, uh, folks with substance use mm-hmm. disorder and, and all the different, what, what have they... What have they taught you? Uh, what have they taught you about people? Uh, what have they taught you about God? Man, uh, they've taught me that a, a love exists that I never knew existed between man. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I learned, and Andy Stanley's my favorite author, and uh, he says, you know, that uh, that people who judge people haven't listened to the stories of those they're judging, mm. and uh, and so say that one more time. Um, people who judge people haven't listened to the stories of those they are judging. That's really good, and uh, that's a, a paraphrase to mm-hmm. a degree, but the the. Con- understand the concept listen to people mm-hmm. um, you know have two ears and one mouth use them proportionally <laughs> I'm not always the best at that um, so just being present mm-hmm. and connecting with just other human beings mm-hmm. living life mm-hmm. uh, and then wh- whatever story unfolds unfolds mm-hmm. and you know what what I've learned in interacting with people from a let me let's be honest. A background very different than my own, mm-hmm. uh, usually. Uh, with without an addiction history, you know, my parent neither of my parents had an addiction history. I had a, an uncle who would occasionally show up drunk and need twenty bucks, you know, mm-hmm. for gas mm-hmm. or whatever. That's pretty much my only interaction uh, as as a kid. It's people doing life together, mm-hmm. and people. Every everybody has issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I have issues. You have issues. We all have issues. We all have different issues, right? Mm-hmm. And um, what I've learned from individuals, caring, loving, genuine human beings who uh, I've had the pleasure of interacting with for 30-plus years mm-hmm. who just so happen to have a substance use disorder mm-hmm. uh, are, are absolutely no different mm-hmm. than anybody else with any other kind of issue or, mm-hmm. or problem or you know, hurt, habit, hang up, you name it. That's exactly right. You know, and that's and that's something kind of on on that vein uh, that that we talked about right before we started. 
um, about that, you know, we are not the things that we've done. Our activity is not our identity. Um, and, and so within, within our, our community, our ministry reaches out to a lot of folks that uh, are navigating homelessness. And we are trying to be intentional about uh, reframing our, our language so that we're not calling you know, them homeless people. We're saying you know, the, these are children of God who are navigating through a season of, of, of homelessness. You know, it's not who they are. You know, the activity is not the identity. It doesn't define them. That's exactly right. That's exactly, and in fact, you know, that season actually refines us. It doesn't define us. You know, mm. that if we, if we allow uh, the hands of the Creator to come upon us in those moments, that it doesn't destroy us. It actually develops us and helps us to grow into the fullness that, that God has for our lives. Um, but that journey is, is not, it's not linear and, and it's kind of all over the place. So through the ups and the downs and the hills and the valleys of walking with others in recovery, um, what, what is, what does that look like? How do you keep folks encouraged after slips well, and stumbles? What, what is all yeah, that? So I want to, I want to highlight this just for a second, because what, what you said is tremendously powerful. God defines a person, they're, they're a child of God. And if they aren't a child of God, God wants them to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so whether it be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a few words I normally don't say. You know, things like homeless person, mm-hmm. uh, ADHD kid, mm-hmm. um, a bipolar person, mm-hmm. a schizophrenic, mm-hmm. an addict. Uh, like those are words. Those are uh, I say that and I cringe because they're usually those are words I usually don't say. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But everybody starts with humanity, mm-hmm. um, and so and we we all we all have a problem of some sort or a series of them, mm-hmm. and so it's really important to highlight the human first, mm-hmm. the person first. That's right. And and so um, that's it's not an ADHD kid. That is, that is a child mm-hmm. who has attention problems. That is a child with mm-hmm. ADHD. That that that's not a bipolar person. Mm-hmm. That is that is a human being. That is a person mm-hmm. who struggles with bipolar mm-hmm. disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not. And you know, for people with that history, you know, whatever whatever labels exist exist. From my standpoint, I don't say somebody's an addict. That's mm-hmm. a to me, that's a human being who happens to struggle with a substance use disorder or who has struggled with a substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a disease. This is not new. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's been classified as a disease by the International mm-hmm. Classification of Diseases, mm-hmm. AMA, for um, over 70 years. Mm-hmm. Most of us have not been alive that long. Uh, and so this is not a new concept. Um, and, it, and it's a person with a problem. And for, you know, most problems that people have, pick, you know, pick a disease, horrible physical issues or whatever. Uh, people will have that sometimes. They will sometimes go into remission. Uh, sometimes it, it comes back. And people, community will rally around and help and support and love on mm-hmm. publicly and just wrap arms of love entire communities around people in those situations and and it is no different than a person with substance use disorder sometimes people are doing really really well it's in remission uh, and then sometimes there are setbacks just like it maybe with any other you know medical issue or or diagnosis Um, and society has not historically been as quick 
to embrace that person and love on that person. And I think we have a calling to be with that person, see them as a human being with feelings and needs and and everything that we would offer and love and pour out care um, than any other thing. And there, there just isn't that much difference. So I, you know, I have, I have a, a, um, uh, you know, I have, I have a stomach problem. If I don't take my stomach pill in the morning, it might be a little bit of a rough day. You know, it's just not that different than somebody with substance use disorder and, and have and needing the treatment there. And I and I love that um, the idea of, of removing the label and just love them, just love them as a, as another human, another child of God. And uh, man, thirty minutes goes by like that. Um, so uh, definitely going to have to bring you back, Rick, and uh, have, have some more conversations. We didn't even get into half of what I thought we were going to talk about, um, but, but super grateful. Uh, and so I want to thank all of you uh, for joining us on this episode of Come to the Table. Uh, we sincerely hope that it's been an encouragement to your re- recovery or created in you a, a curiosity about what it means to live into a new mindset of service to others. If you'd like to know more about our ministry, uh, connect for coaching, uh, any way that we can help you more faithfully walk with others in need, pour into you in any way, you can reach out to me at thetablebristol117 at gmail.com. Friends, you don't have to walk this road alone. Hope, redemption, beauty from ashes, light from dark, all are closer than you know. So grace and peace to you, my friend.